Hi, I'm Amanda Gilbertson. And I'm Amy Peterloo. And you're listening to the Afternoon Udder with the Australia India Institute. We're joined today by Professor Srila Roy, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of the Witwatersrand, South Africa. Professor Roy's research explores gender, caste, class, and sexuality in Indian political movements. So, Srila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You've been studying Indian feminisms for quite some time now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the changes that you've seen during the time that you've been doing this research? Okay, so when I started the research at around um, 2010, 2011, I would say that the terrain was very much infused by what I would call a kind of fatigue or even a political pessimism. There was a sense that the golden age of Indian feminism was over, and by which I mean the kind of radical public protest that marked the 1970s and the 1980s. And instead, the terrain was very much dominated by funded organizations, namely NGOs. And then, of course, what happened, uh, as you probably know, towards the end of 2012 was the gang rape and murder of a 23-year-old uh, medical student, Jyoti Singh Pandey. And then we saw a sort of resurgence of feminist activism, right? So we saw uh, the coming onto the streets of a lot of uh, men and women, just ordinary citizens who weren't part of the mainstream women's movement, who weren't part of political parties, who wouldn't even call themselves feminists, but who felt incredibly uh, moved by and politicized by this singular event and were demanding gender justice. But I think what was also interesting about that moment was that it, it kind of produced a crisis in terms of what we actually also mean by Indian feminism, because there were calls for the death penalty and the chemical castration of rapists. And then that left sort of some established uh, activists asking, you know, how can we ask for the death penalty in the name of uh, gender justice? Um, I think subsequently uh, to uh, the events of 2012, what we also saw was a kind of a new visibility uh, to new forms of feminist mobilization. Uh, so young women taking to the streets and talking about issues around women's safety and access to the to public spaces. And these were also, I think, quite different from earlier mobilizations because young women were really articulating their rights uh, to, um, you know, be in public spaces like men, to have fun, uh, to loiter, to hang out, and so on and so forth. So these were also quite marked shifts, I think, in uh, feminist discourses. What do you think led to young women protesting for the right to have fun as um, opposed to, for example, the right to be safe in public space? Um, so basically what has generally been the, the, the Indian state's response to questions around uh, public safety or the lack of safety when it comes to women in uh, public spaces, and that's urban and rural, is, is protection, right? It's a kind of protectionism. So it's to argue that if women are not safe in the public space, they basically shouldn't be in the public space at all. So instead, uh, women have obviously argued traditionally that, you know, their, their right to the public space, right to public spaces cannot rely on their curtailment in public spaces. But I think now feminists are going even further to say, actually, women should be able to, women have the right to access and inhabit the public spaces for doing absolutely nothing. And that's the concept of loitering, to just hang out, to just be, to just enjoy the city in, in whatever way. Mm -hmm. And did the Me Too movement have repercussions in India as well? 
Right. So uh, the Me Too movement had actually very major repercussions in India because close on the heels of the global uh, Me Too uh, explosion was uh, an anonymous list that basically uh, circulated online, which named uh, sexual predators in the Indian Academy. Uh, Many of these were sort of superstars located in, uh, some of whom were located in North America, but several of whom were located in India. And and basically it, it acted like a, a whisper campaign. So a, a list just, just with names, but giving no context or giving no details of incidences or uh, allegations. But but it created this this kind of space where where individual women could really say, oh, I, I know, I mean, I know this person is a predator. And slowly, slowly, we actually had the outpouring of stories on social media where we don't know who who actually named the person, but there were other women coming out with stories attached to the same person. So I think um, what happened here was at least two things. One was a clear sense that feminist politics has to go beyond the law. Mm-hmm. that we can't actually wait for institutional mechanisms, be that on our campuses or in the law, to redress sexual harassment, that we have to sort of take things into our own hands. You know, we've waited too long uh, for institutions to change or the law to give us gender justice, and it's not going to happen. So we are going to do uh, public naming and and uh, shaming. And, of course, in the Indian context, this should come as no surprise because just before the list, as it's now called, uh, happened, there was a famous case where a local Indian filmmaker was convicted of rape by a lower court through the accusation of an American student who happened to be visiting. And then a few months later, that lower court judgment got overturned by a senior, uh, a higher court, where basically the woman's no to rape was made a feeble no, as the judge called it. Yeah, I think think he said something like... um, uh, we know that a feeble no can mean yes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So exactly. So effectively what happened was her act of non not consenting became consensual. You know, this is part of a long history of judges and courts being absolutely sexist, patriarchal, and of course, casteist, right? I mean, we know of the famous case of Panwari Devi, who was a, you know, a lower caste rural development worker who was basically uh, in, a, in an act of revenge raped by upper caste men because she was trying to stop child marriage in her particular village. And... Uh, it, And this was an open secret. The entire community knew that that's how Panwari Devi was basically punished. And the court said that upper caste men wouldn't rape low caste women because that would be demeaning themselves. So there is such a long history to how courts and judges have not just failed us in, in, in our struggle for gender justice, but have actively acted against women's interests. So I think there's something to be said about, uh, you know, using tools and technologies that go beyond the law or at least uh, suggest that our fatigue with the law and that we cannot rely on the law. But the second thing I think that the, that the list and the, the kind of controversy around the list brought to the front was the issue of caste. So, uh, as as you probably know, uh, there were a lot of sort of contestations around having an anonymous list. I mean, one of them was that, you know, how, I mean, how do we know whether these allegations are true? What does this mean for due process, et cetera, et cetera? And while initially many of um, 
these internal debates and contestations were framed around generational terms with, you know, older feminists being slightly wary and younger feminists saying, oh, no, due process has had its time. You know, we have to do public naming and shaming. It quickly became a question of caste. Because the person who started the list, uh, Raya Sarkar, was identified as or self-identified as low caste. Yeah. And, uh, and and the the so-called backlash to the list was seen to be spearheaded by upper caste, uh, very elite feminists in uh, belonging basically to Delhi. Now, whether that's true or not is is, I think, a, a point of debate and there are different views. And I think that's frankly irrelevant about the particular identity positions. I think the moment actually just brought to the front that caste can no longer be subsumed under class, which is the way in which Indian feminism has always dealt with the caste issue, uh, primarily because of its kind of socialist leanings. You know, I mean, communist parties and left politics more generally in India have never dealt with caste as an independent category. It's always been as if class as a sociological category deals with caste in and of itself. And now, finally, I think there's a space. And again, it's interesting that it's younger feminists who are really pushing this to say that no caste is not class. You know, caste is an independent category and minority feminist voices have been subsumed under this idea of sisterhood or under the the we of Indian feminism. And that's not enough. Uh, so, Srila, you're speaking a bit about um, how the list and the reaction to it has raised this conversation about in Indian feminism about thinking about gender justice beyond the law um, when the law has not sufficiently been able to deliver gender justice. Can you say a little bit more about what that might mean as compared to sort of encouraging a vigilante justice? I mean, obviously, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I think and and actually my views have shifted quite a bit in the way in the unfolding, the immediate aftermath or after life of the list, because it, it sort of continues. So at the start, I, I, I too felt a bit uncomfortable about the anonymous nature, the fact that, you know, we, we had no sense. We literally had a list of names of men and we had no sense of, you know, what the allegations were and we had no sense of who was making them or what indeed the allegations were. And there was a sense that they could cover everything uh, from rape to, you know, uh, sexual innuendo and what did that mean then? And I also had questions about, uh, you know, which which a lot of other people raised as well about what does this politics then mean uh, for producing women as subjects who were simply victims, right, who could simply uh, call out a man and make a certain accusation, but were not then, uh, we couldn't afford women, uh, we couldn't question women, basically, right? And for me, that that uh, it left me uh, wondering, are we then allowing women the full spectrum of human capacity to maybe lie or, or any of that. So that was my initial feeling. Mm-hmm. And I felt I wanted more. I felt I wanted to know what some of the allegations were. But I have to say my my response shifted quite quickly when I saw the kind of outpouring uh, of, of personal testimony. I saw how women suddenly felt very emboldened to say uh, things that we actually, a lot of us knew. We knew some of the stories around sexual predators in circulation. And suddenly I felt this was a, a space was created when women could come out and actually uh, name people. And then, in fact, you know, 
could provide texture if they wanted to and they didn't have to about what what happened and what these kind of allegations were. And then subsequently, we've seen some forms of institutional redress. So we've seen some universities um, in India, for instance, begin to you know, take these as serious charges and start investigations around particular individuals. I have to say in South Africa, part of what I do is I work with our gender equity office where we 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 um, we go through sexual harassment cases. So I'm part routinely of hearings and uh, committee work where we actually try and you know, do this kind of very awkward extrajudicial mechanism. And it's terribly hard work. You know, it's 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 very it's very tedious, it's very emotionally draining and it's often ineffective. <laughs> you know, it doesn't actually amount to changing uh, patriarchal or rape culture on campuses, particularly when I mean, not just when students are involved, but student staff and so on and so forth. So I think uh, through all that, I'm what I'm saying is I think we do need other mechanisms. You know, mm-hmm. we can't actually just wait and think that institutional mechanisms are enough and they're going to have any kind of mm-hmm. uh, repercussions and an effect. And the other thing I, I saw and heard through the Whisper Network was that men for the first time were thinking twice, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, about how they their boundaries with students or how they engage with women students or even in terms of making sexist comments, which I think all of us have women academics have always been at the receiving end of. And there is no accountability to that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So I felt for the first time a space was being created where actually women were saying enough is enough and men were having to reflect and think, actually, maybe I think I'm some cool lefty dude, bro, but I'm not. I'm a sexist mm-hmm. pig. Yeah, I think also sometimes this kind of representation of vigilante justice as more likely to cause harm ignores the fact that attempts to achieve gender justice through the state often enact violence. They enact state violence that can be experienced by women themselves who are trying to go through that process, but also by marginalized communities. The state can direct that violence at Dalit men, um, at Muslim men, at men in, in minority communities. So I think Sometimes that juxtaposition is is denying the fact that the state is also a source of violence, right? right. It isn't just this benevolent force of justice exactly. that we might mm-hmm. hope it would be. And Amy and I were both at this really fantastic Melbourne Writers Festival event last week um, where an author and journalist, uh, Deepanjana Pal, um, uh, spoke about India's Me Too movement. And she spoke about the list. And one of the things she said is, you know, people are reacting as if um, these online accusations are some kind of Supreme Court trial. She's like, you know, the consequences of of this list um, have actually been non-existent for most mm. of the people mentioned on the yes. list. So in one instance, the the accusations on the list led to a formal procedure at a university. And the person was and acquitted. And the person... Was found guilty? Oh, really? I, I think, think both have happened. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so in at at one university, someone was found guilty and has faced repercussions. Mm. Um, uh, but for the most part, it has just been um, a space for women to talk about um, their experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this kind of, as Amy says, this binary that's created between vigilante justice and state justice, yes. it not only denies the violence of the state um, and, you know, uh, suggests that the state is somehow impartial, um, but also misses the point that the consequences aren't actually mm. that severe for, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think calling it even vigilante justice is is such a, such a is such an exaggeration, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually to give it 
too much. I mean, like you're mm-hmm. saying, I mean, whatever consequences have been really minimal. I mean, I think now for the challenge for beyond the list for uh, the global Me Too movement is the recent cases of accusations against women. Mm. I mean, I think that's producing a whole set of quite interesting uh, questions. I don't know if either of you have been following the Avital Ronald and Reitman case, and there's been another one. So I think this is, again, you know, raising very interesting questions, particularly uh, for us as feminists. And again, to go back to what I said before about understanding that, of course, women are also capable of abuse and injury and violence. And we have to be able to describe women the full spectrum of human uh, actions and behavior and capacities that we we allow for men, right? Mm-hmm. So so this idea that, you know, in some of the press that Avital is a feminist, which apparently she isn't, but again, that's irrelevant, I think, that, that you know, women can't, can't actually be at the receiving end of this and its backlash. I, I just think that's shutting down the debate. Of course, women can be. And part of this for all of us is to think about the space of the academy, right? And how mm-hmm. the academy produces particular kinds of toxicity, which you know, we're all, uh, we could all be vulnerable to at different points. Mm, fascinating. And um, it sounded there like you were describing something of a generational shift as well. Do you think there has been a little bit of an intergenerational difference in the way that people are practicing feminisms in India? I mean, I, th- I think, yes, there has been, but I'd like to also caution against overusing mm. or overestimating the generational differences. So, of course, we do see uh, younger women and indeed men mobilizing in ways that we haven't seen previously, often through technologies that were previously unavailable, such as online, you know, using online technologies and spaces. But I think there are also quite interesting continuities. So one quick example would be, you know, the open letter that was sent around the time of the Mathura rape. So, you know, very prominent uh, members of the legal community and activists wrote a letter to the Supreme Court asking to overturn the judgment in the Mathura rape case. And I think that technology of the open letter very much resonates with the kind of, you know, digitalized technologies that we're using today, even in the context of Me Too. So I just want us to be a little more aware of and map these continuities, which otherwise we might lose sight of. And Sruta, in your own work, you've looked at politics around gender um, together alongside with politics around sex and sexuality. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about why you consider um, gender politics and sexual politics alongside each other. What do we gain by looking at them together? Okay, so I think in the Indian context, it's quite hard to to not look at them together because of the particular ways in which uh, feminism has evolved in the Indian context. So as you both probably know, the Indian women's movement has always operated with a clear prioritization of issues. So for instance, class has always been, um, has has trumped sexuality, if you want. You know, Indian feminism has always uh, positioned class as being extremely important. A class and caste sort of subsumed within that as being extremely important to the majority of Indian women has no, and has tended to dismiss uh, sexuality as being a kind of elite middle class uh, and and effectively just not a relevant issue to uh, to the context. And part of this is again goes back to its socialist and uh, post-colonial. Uh, origins. So in order to establish itself as being non-Western and non-elite, Indian feminism had to kind of prove its credentials uh, in terms of what the masses want or what they represent. Um, and, uh, and what happens as a result is 
the continual sort of dismissal of sexuality and especially uh, women's sexuality, except when it's configured in terms of violence and victimization. So for the longest time, um, Indian feminists, and I think Ratna Kapoor is right here when she talks of them as being sex negative, as really not having uh, a broader sense of sexuality or even sexual politics and power, except in terms of violence and uh, victimization. Uh, so from that sense, I think historically, you can't really think of uh, sexual politics outside of its location in this in this history and in this context. You know, you, you, you have to understand or unpack the evolution of sexual politics in relation to the ways in which, uh, you know, Indian feminists thought of gender and kind of delinked it from a, a broader sense of sexuality, if you want. So you live and work in South Africa. <laughs> Do you see any surprising parallels or differences between political movements, feminist or otherwise, in South Africa and in India in your work there? Um, I think uh, obviously there are a lot of similarities in so far as these are both uh, decolonized states and uh, women's movements have grown and flourished in conjunction with the um, anti-nationalist struggles or the struggles for decolonization. But I think the general consensus is that uh, the South African women's movement has been weak or at least weaker than uh, its Indian counterpart or its counterparts elsewhere. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it hasn't uh, developed a strong critique of state power in the way in which Indian feminists have. And a clear example of that was uh, the Zuma rape trial where the former president uh, Zuma was charged of uh, rape by a woman who was named Kwesi and the ANC's Women's League was completely in support of the president, right? So you had a very, uh, so you had a split in terms of, you know, feminist activists, but the Women's League who really took a position which was in support of state power and uh, patriarchy against, uh, you know, a victimized woman. In India, in contrast, I think you've had a much clearer commitment to autonomy, right? The principle of autonomy that, you know, women's groups and feminist groups have to be autonomous from the state, but also autonomous from funders and donors. And obviously, this 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 latter ideal is somewhat eroded with the with the kind of NGOization of the Indian women's movement. But I still think there is a very strong suspicion of the state. And there is a continuous sort of push and pull with the state, but a constant sense that, you know, the, the threat of being co-opted is a real one. Having said that, I, th- I think in terms of um, similarities, I see some of the robust campaigns by younger women around violence against women in both contexts, which are very similar. So uh, like in India, in South Africa, you have mobilizations which are digital and online, but also offline uh, by young women against rape culture, against patriarchy. So a very... um, a very major moment happened uh, a couple of years ago when President Zuma was actually speaking live on national television and uh, forced women, some of whom happened to be with students, came in front, stood in front of the camera with posters saying Kwesi, who's the name of the victim he raped. And it was an incredibly disruptive and powerful moment, which was also on live television and and completely anticipated, right? Again, this wasn't organized by any kind of, uh, you know, major group or NGO. It was just young women spontaneously, you know, taking 
taking over the field and and disrupting it. And I think you've we've yeah. So I think that's that's kind of similar in both contexts, and it kind of remains to be seen how these kind of spontaneous one-off moments have broader repercussions and reverberations. Mm. Mm. And if you think if we think now beyond uh, South Africa and India, and thinking about what is it that perhaps feminisms elsewhere could learn from India? Indian feminisms have been transnational from the start, and that's really because of the history of colonialism and imperialism. So even if you think of the 19th century and you think of linkages that between women and the colonies and struggles uh, you know, for suffrage or whatever in the metropole, or if you think of women like uh, Ramabai and Sarojini Naidu going, I mean, there's always been this kind of cross um Cross cross national conversation and and linkages and I and I think again uh, feminists in the context of the West would do better to think of those historical and global interconnections that sometimes get flattened out. Yeah, there's this fantastic image of um, some Indian women marching in London um, as part of the um, campaign for the vote for women. Um, yeah, right. so many, so many decades ago. Right, yeah. right. And yeah. I, yeah, so I think it's worth, I mean, not just in terms, just for as a historical reminder, but I think we need to think of ourselves as being much more interconnected and think of, you know, colonialism and imperialism, not as forces that just affect what happened in the colonies, but as also obviously completely shaped what's happened in the heart of empire. And that's one way in which we can think of, you know, gendered power structures and ultimately gender justice. Thank you so much, Srila, for joining us today. Um, I think one of the things I've enjoyed most about this discussion is precisely what you opened with. You know, we had that period of uh, thinking about the Indian women's movement where it was just so melancholic. It was just this narrative of this golden age in the 70s and 80s, and now it's all NGOized and it's all this professional career feminism. And you've told us such a different story today. So thank you so much. 